Today's scripture is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then, you will be, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We are continuing in our series today called Manifesto, where we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this is basically really the only in-depth sermon that we have of Jesus's that he preached, uh, kind of in a uh, monologue fashion. And so we've been tracking through it for several weeks now, and it's been a real blessing to us, and it's been convicting us all. I've got some trophies somewhere in the attic in a box at my mom's house. You know, they're not, they're not much a part of my life anymore, but there was a time in my life where those trophies were vitally important in my life. In fact, they were so significant to me that I, that I had a shelf with those trophies on it. You know, I had, you know, baseball, basketball, uh, one year of football, I was a little guy, Taekwondo, Boy Scouts, and even a little writing trophy. It's funny because my mom would dust the shelf. I was an only child to my mother, uh, so she took care of my room for me. She would dust the shelf, and I always noticed that she would place that writing trophy most prominently in front of the shelf. I think she was so surprised that I got it, honestly, so you just kept putting it in the front. But this, those trophies were very much a part of my life for a long time, and, and, and now they're in the attic. Why? I think for a season, they reminded me of who I was. They reminded me of what I had done in life, and they gave me value. They're not displayed on my, you know, my office anymore. They're in the attic because my significance is found in some other places now. So, so no matter how old you are or what you've done in this life, you have your own trophies. Uh, and, and, and they may not be literal trophies, but nonetheless, they are accomplishments and works in your life that you value, that give you validity. And here's how to tell what your trophy is. When you, when you feel most worthless in life, what do you cling to for worth? When you feel like all is lost, what do you go to? At least I still have blank. Now, the, for us adults, this could be your job, uh, your spouse, your house, your, your bank account, your car. We could go to any of those things. And for kids, it may be, it may be those literal trophies that we have. And, and I do want to say this, that the, the kids in here, it's great to have your trophies up in your room. My kids have them up in their room, and they, they can't wait till trophy day it's when, they, when they have their sports. But, but here's the reminder for you, uh, that, that, that a trophy is a reminder not about how great you are, but how great God in you is. Uh, and that's what we have to re be reminded of. Jesus says that our real trophy uh, is a relationship with our Father in heaven. And that's why we no longer have to prominently display the things that we've done on the earth quite as prominently because of what Jesus has done. There's this, there's this instance in Revelation chapter 4, and there's, a, there's this picture that's given of a throne room in heaven. And, and around this throne room, 
John gives this, this vision, this, this, this picture of what it's like to worship God. And he says there's these 24 elders. And we're not real sure the significance of 24. Maybe it's the, you know, the 12 tribes of, of Israel and the, the 12 apostles. But, but nevertheless, they, they are uh, indicative of the, the spiritual leadership of the church throughout all time. And it says that these spiritual leaders are, are given these crowns as rewards. And what I want to read to you now, we'll, we'll give you a picture where we're going today because it, it shows us what, what the, the things that we are rewarded with in life, how they compare to a relationship with Jesus. So let's read Revelation 4. We're going to look at verses uh, 10 and 11 real quick to kind of set us up this morning. Verse 10 says this, The twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne. And they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And what do they do with those crowns? They cast their crowns before the throne. So, so what they're saying by this is not even worthy of comparing to who Jesus is. And what do they say as they, they cast those rewards down before His feet? They say, Worthy are You, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will, they existed and were created. This is what Jesus is calling us to today as we, as we continue in Matthew 6. And our, my prayer for you this week has been this. Lord, teach us to be a nobody because You're somebody. Teach us to be nothing because You're something. God, do that work in us. Do that work in us. So let's look at Matthew uh, 6. If you've got your Bible, flip it open to that. The big idea for today uh, will kind of be our guide for how we look at this. And the way that Matthew 6 is laid out is that Matthew 6.1 gives us this, this principle this principle of what it looks like to live in light of who Jesus is with our righteousness and our accomplishments and, and all the things that we do in life. How do we live in light of that? And then Jesus goes on to give three examples in the rest of Matthew 6. He says, he talks about, basically it kind of covers the whole Christian life. He talks about verses 2-4 through four talk about this idea of giving. How, how do we steward what you've given to us? And what, is it, what does it look like to steward it with humility? And then, and then after that, he goes into what prayer looks like. So what a communing relationship with our Father in heaven looks like in light of what Jesus has done. And then he goes on to fasting or basically killing sin. Like how do we kill sin with humility? And so we're going to look at that uh, over the next several weeks together. And in fact, we're going to really drill down over the Advent season, which starts next Sunday. And we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer together and how that gives us access to our Father in Heaven. So, so we're going to dig in and look at that principle today in Matthew 6.1. And then in verses 2-4, through 4, we're going to look at the first example, first case study that Jesus gives us. So the big idea is this. Grace calls us to hide in humility when we're tempted to show in pride, and show in faith when we're tempted to hide in fear. Now that's a mouthful, but I think it captures what we're going after today. Basically what we're saying is that we could draw attention to ourselves through what God has done in us. We could, we could take the work that God has done in us, and now He's made us more obedient, and we could make that about ourselves. But the Holy Spirit moves us to go unnoticed 
Because we're known by God. That's the work that He does. He's always pushing our flesh down lower still because Jesus lives inside of us. And that's who Jesus was. We don't have to show our righteousness off. And on the other side of this, there are times that in our sin we want to hide. You know, hiding can be a good thing. Hiding can be a bad thing. There are times you want to hide in your sin. It could be because you're ashamed of something you've done and you don't want anyone to know about it. Or it could be that you're afraid. You're afraid of sharing the gospel with your coworker. You're afraid of opening yourself up vulnerably in a small group. You're afraid. In those times, God gives us faith to be bold and believe that His grace is real. So that's kind of what we're looking at today. So let's look at the first point of this. Because of grace, we can have genuine faith in place of fear. And, and really what I want to look at in this, in this uh, point here is the difference in hypocritical and genuine faith because Jesus uses those words. He uses the word hypocrite. You know, we're, we're born into a, a state of, of fear and panic. Uh, everyone's out to get us, so we, we live in fear and we feel sometimes like we can't trust anyone when we're betrayed. Um, but but when, it, when it comes to uh, trying to obey Jesus and live out the Great Commission to make His grace known, we're, we're so terrified um, about what that might look like. Uh, you know, we, we think that we can't be generous with our stuff because we're afraid maybe we'll run out and God won't provide the way that He has said that He will. We think that maybe we can't follow Jesus in the middle of the mess of our lives, especially when it comes to someone else sharing their mess with us because we don't know how to fix them. The enemy desires, friends, for each of us to look at ourselves to be the fix of the problem that we see in front of us. And I would propose to you today that a hypocritical faith is a faith that always tries to do it on by yourself. A genuine, you know a genuine faith is, is active and present in your life when you're like, I don't know how this is going to work out. When you get to that point where you're like, man, I don't know how the finances are going to work out. I know God's called me to be generous. Man, I don't know how this is going to play out when I share this, with, when I confess this to my brothers and sisters, this thing that's happened in my life. I don't know how this is going to play out when I'm honest with my wife about some things that have been going on. That requires faith. Stepping out into the unknown and trusting Jesus to make all things new in your life. That's what a genuine faith looks like, and the enemy is always going to tempt us to try to live a Christian life without any faith. That's what he's always going to try to do. Colossians 3.3 gives us kind of the secret of what it looks like to live by faith. And it says this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Such freedom found in these truths. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So what he's saying is, listen, I know you like to hide. I mean, God's people have been hiding since they were created, right? I mean, what did Adam and Eve do in the garden? The first thing they did was they ran for the bushes, right? They hid. They were afraid of God. It's the enemy that taught us to be afraid of God. God is a friend of sinners because of the work of Jesus. And so, friends, what we are called to do is to hide in Jesus, and hiding in Jesus looks like being exposed and being known. That's what genuine faith looks like. You're not as put together as you think you should be. If that's the way you feel this morning, I just want to say this. You're in a good place. 
Not only because of this church, and we, we feel that way about ourselves, but you're in a good place with God. Because you realize that you need Jesus. That's when you know you're in a good place. You get into the hypocritical side of faith whenever you think that you can do it on your own. This is what Jesus was always after uh, with, the, the, with the Pharisees. So, so Jesus wants us to, to understand that there's a difference between genuine and, and hypocritical faith. And, and Matthew 6 kind of lays it out for us when, uh, when, when Jesus talks about this idea of the Father seeing us. If you read through Matthew 6, you'll notice that there's been a change in the vocabulary and the vernacular that Jesus is using to address the disciples. The word Father is used over and over and over again because Jesus wants God's people to know something. That they, have, they can have a personal relationship with God, that He's a Father to children, and that He sees us at all times and in all things and that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be seen by God. It's a very good thing. And the, the difference in genuine and hypocritical faith, I think for us on our side of things, is seeing God as Father and knowing that He sees you in all of life. For better or worse, God sees you. That's really good news uh, for us as God's people. So let's drill down into this hypocritical faith. You know, uh, in, in, in uh, Greek culture, uh, the word hypocrite was actually the word for actor. So, so the way it would look um, is that someone would know that this person is an actor because they would get to the theater. And at the theater, the, uh, the hypocrite would walk up on the stage. He would, uh, he would put on his mask and he would pray it about and he would play the part. And then after... The performance, he would take off the mask and he would get on with his life. We, we all like to wear masks. We like to dress up. I mean, when I was in Australia, my wife sent me this picture of, of my daughter Maggie. Yes, those are Mr. Potato Head glasses on her face. We all like to dress up. We love to dress up, you know? For those of you that have chosen to, uh, to, to, to kind of engage missionally in Halloween and dress up and love your neighbors and be among them, you love to dress up, it's fun. But in those occasions, we know that we're dressing up and we're pretending to be someone that we're not. But the warning that Jesus is giving is that there is a temptation for us to dress up and pretend and no one else knows it. And we deceive other people. That each of us have this alter ego inside of us that wants to run down those tracks. That, 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 that wants to be a hypocrite. And it's because we think that God won't accept us. It's because we think that if He knows who we really are, He won't love us. That's why we do it. But Jesus says in Matthew 6 that when you perform acts of righteousness for other people to see you, that you've already received your commendation, you've already received your reward. So basically what He's, what, what he's saying is, is there's nothing left for Jesus to give you in all of eternity if you're too busy taking it for yourself in this life. So, so he proposes that there's this kind of secret, humble righteousness that we're to live out as God's people. Um, 
The hypocrite wants to make a name for himself. He's concerned with being seen by other people with his acts of righteousness, with his church attendance, with his giving, with his acts of piety among the poor. He wants others to notice him. And I would say we, it, it just looks different for us. We would say, yeah, I'm not like, I'm not like standing up front like, you know, letting all the change fall on the offering plate like these guys were, because they were doing that. But we do different things like, you know, when we're on, you know, our social media account, we'll make sure that people kind of know the good deeds that we're doing, how generous we are, and how much we're reading our Bible. And, and we'll do things like that. And, and I, would, I would propose that when we do those types of things, I'm not saying it's always with the wrong motive, we do those types of things, we're trying to get validated by other people. And what it reveals to us in our hearts is that we don't feel validated by our Father in Heaven. And the truth is, is that we are very much validated by our Father in Heaven. And that He does love us and He does receive us. And when we, when we go down these tracks our entire life, we find out what Thomas Merton wrote about. He says this, People may spend the whole life, their whole lives climbing up the ladder of success only to find, once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. I got what I always wanted, only to discover it wasn't what I wanted. So my question to you today as we, as we kind of transition today, is that if you feel like you are honestly just stuck in a perpetual state of hypocrisy, I want you to know that God loves you and He sees you, and that's a really good thing. But there's no hope for the hypocrite because the hypocrite doesn't confess his sin because he's afraid to confess his sin. So if, you're in, if, you catch, if you've caught yourself in a constant state of hypocrisy, you're, you're caught in some uh, just overbearing sin, uh, God desires to move you out of the captivity of Romans 6 into the freedom of Romans 8. That's what His desire is for us. But we can only do that by confessing our sins so that He can give healing to us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So my question to you today is this. Which wall is your ladder leaning against? Which wall is your ladder leaning against? And is it the right wall? This may be a question for you to consider. Let's, let's kind of press in and look at genuine faith a little bit more here. Jesus says, hey look, there's this other way to live. It's pretty secret and hidden, and you're not going to receive a lot of applaud on this side of heaven. But trust me, when you get into all of eternity, you're going to see the glory of God. And it's going it's to be unlike anything you've ever seen and experienced before. He says there's this other way to live. And I think this way to, the key to living this way is knowing that your Father sees you and that your Father loves you. I mean, think about this. There would be no such thing as a hypocrite in the church if we knew that God sees us all the time and that that's a good thing. That God sees us, that He loves us, that He knows everything about not even our actions, but our hearts' intentions and motives. If we knew that all the time, there'd be no such thing as a Christian that would want to live like a hypocrite. And by the way, this is what most unbelievers say about the church, right? Oh, I don't go to church because it's full of... Hypocrites, right? And which you can say to them, yes, I know, I'm one of them. But there's good news for people like me. We don't have to stay hypocrites because there's freedom in Jesus and we can be known. That's what the Gospel is, guys. So this morning, it, if you know that you're a fraud and you're, man, you're just really caught in a trap, I, I, I want to I encourage you to do the scariest thing that you're ever going to do in your life. And that is to confess your sins to God and to whoever you've sinned against. It's, it's scary, but it's not as scary as not doing it. You know what I'm saying? 
So whatever it is for you, if, if you feel like, man, like he's got my number, he's preaching to me this morning, I promise I don't, I didn't read your email, I don't know. But, but if that's you, man, there's such freedom that Jesus has for you to come out of the darkness and into the light because he's in the light. That's what he has for us. So kind of as we move on here, I just want to share this with you. What you will realize if you begin to walk in that measure of freedom in your life is that, is that you'll, have, you'll have a tremendous amount of freedom because you know that you're forgiven and you'll be willing to extend that forgiveness to others. When I was in Australia, I had this quiet time and I was just kind of thinking about what Jesus values in His people. And, and it, came, it occurred to me as I was reading uh, an account in the Gospels that Jesus values those who know that they're forgiven. And so I just kind of wrote this question in my journal. What would it look like for me today to live as the most forgiven man in the world? I mean, what if that was the question that we ask ourselves every morning we woke up? How can I live as the most forgiven person in the world? Because if I'm the chief of sinners, like Paul says that he was, we're all the chief of sinners. All chiefs. How can I live as the most forgiven person in the world? That'll change the way that you see other people and you see yourself and that you magnify Jesus. It'll change everything. So let's keep moving here. Because of grace, we can have humility in place of pride. So, so there's this other account in, in Matthew 5 here where it seems to contradict what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. I want to throw both of them up on the screen and talk about the difference here. So in Matthew, uh, Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Because you're not going to have a reward if that's your motive. But Matthew 5 says something that seems so crazy. It seems counterintuitive. It says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, He says this, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. Wait, Jesus? You just told me to hide my good works. Now you're telling me to, you want me to show off these good works. Here's the difference. So they see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. The difference is two things. It's motive and it's audience. So as we think about what it looks like to live righteously among a lost world, two things we always have to keep in mind if we want to stay on the tracks that Jesus has for us. Motive and audience. Motive is the first one. One of the greatest tactics that the enemy uh, plays against us is to convince us to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Let me say that again. One of the things the enemy loves to do is to convince us to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Because here's what happens. When we do the right thing, people applaud us. Oh, you did the right thing. Great job. But on the inside, we do it for the wrong reason. And so it, it counts for nothing in the kingdom of heaven. In our hearts, it counts for nothing. Jesus says there's no reward if your motive is off. So the tension that we always have to manage and asks, ask ourselves is this, is why am I doing this? What's, what's, my motive, what's my motive in what I'm about to say, do, or give, or be? Whatever, whatever action you're about to do for Jesus, it's like, what, why am I doing this? Am I doing this to draw attention to myself so that people think I'm a, maybe a little bit more put together than I am? Or am I doing this so my Father in Heaven might receive more glory? Uh, Proverbs 4.23 gives us sound wisdom here on how we do this. How do we keep our motives pure? Proverbs 4.23 says this, 
Keep your heart with all vigilance. Man, that's, that's like warrior language. You know what I'm saying? Like 300 gladiator kind of stuff. Keep your heart with all vigilance. There is an active participation that we have with the Holy Spirit when it comes to our motives. God gives us the grace of His Holy Spirit, which in turn gives us power to obey God. But He says you've always got to keep this one thing in check. It's your heart. And you've got to fight for the purity of your heart with everything that you've got because the enemy will try to twist it at every turn in your life. He'll try to twist it inward and make it about you. He'll try to make you a victim in that circumstance. He'll try to turn it and make it about you. So we've got to keep our heart with all vigilance because the way in which we keep our heart and put effort in those places, there'll be a direct correlation with how how our life goes. He says, if, if your heart is pure from it, flow the springs of life. So everything comes from your heart. So we've got to protect our hearts. We protect our hearts by protecting kind of the intake of the things that we receive into our heart. But, I mean, think about the lies that we believe, church. I mean, most of us have believed probably multiple lies about ourselves and others this morning. This morning... We have done that. And the Scriptures, you know, encourage us to take every thought captive. So what would it look like for you today to to not just believe those little lies along the way about yourself and others when it comes to what the Scriptures say about who you are and other people are in light of who Jesus is? What would it look like to, to immediately repent of those things, to guard your heart so they don't turn your heart inward and make it hard? Because then you... You have no option but to live as the hypocrite because you've got to keep up the image, but your heart is all corroded on the inside. So we've got to guard our heart from the get-go. And if you have, if you have trouble figuring out what, what your motive is, the Scriptures, uh, well, the scriptures show this, but, but life shows us this as well. Motive is revealed by expectation. You're like, well, how do I know if I have expectations? Here's a quick way to find out if you have any expectations. Think about the last time you were frustrated about something. That frustration reveals an expectation that you maybe you may or may not know existed, and that expectation reveals a motive that you may or may not know existed. You didn't get what you want, so you got frustrated, and it reveals that there were motive and expectation behind it. So just think back to those times that you get frustrated and trace it back. And ask God to give you clean hands and a pure heart. That's how we move forward with the idea of motive. The second thing is this. Audience is the the second thing that's different about those two Scriptures that Jesus says. Uh, God is very uh, interested in us living out the Gospel in front of the world. But He's very interested in us keeping Him the focus of the glory. I mean, God came and He saved us because God is about His glory. That's hard for us to think about. God is jealous for His own glory throughout the world. And He happens to receive tons and tons of glory as His people return the gifts of grace that He's given us back to Him by living humble lives. But the hypocrite is always tempted to rob God's glory, to to steal it for himself and to get a cheap reward. Uh, And I'll just close this point by, by asking this. How free would you be this morning if you didn't have to live for other people? Just think about that. How free would it be for you? How freeing would it be for you to not have to live for other people? 
but to be so secure in who Jesus Christ is for you and what He has done in light of your sin and in light of God's mercy and love, how free would it be if that lived inside of you at all times? That's what God wants for us as His people. So that's kind of the principle of Matthew 6.1. So now we're going to kind of make a hard transition as we look at how this applies really to generosity and giving. So Matt, let, me, let me refresh your memory on how this plays out in Matthew 6, 2-4. I'll read it for us real quick. Thus when you give to the needy, he's like, hey, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's what you got to know about almsgiving and giving in general in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, giving is absolutely required and is a standard part of everyone's life. Get this, regardless of their income level, regardless of their class, regardless of any of that, generosity is a part of their life. It's built into their life. So, so it really wasn't a matter of if you give. You know, Jesus doesn't ask, He doesn't say if you give, but He says, but when you give to the needy. And then He goes on to address the how. So here's the difference. In 21st century American culture, this, this isn't kind of the, the, the understood place where we're all coming from. So we've got to answer two questions. First is the if and then the how. On, on, on the motive uh, for giving. So if, do we give? Isn't that a convicting question? And if you're here for the first time, and the last church you visited talked about money the time that you were there, and then the last church, you know, I'm sorry. It's in the Scriptures. We're going to deal with it this morning. We're going to hit it head on. It's not what we talk about every week. This, this, this sermon is really for those that are, this part of the sermon anyway, is really for those that are here at New City, your roots are down. We've got, to answer, we've got to answer these questions together. Do we give? God's plan for your life, church, according to Matthew 6, is that you secretly be very generous. That's how He made you. So, so, so think about it like this. The way for us to experience supreme joy in Jesus Christ is to live generously. To say it another way, if generosity is not a part of our life, we are missing out on part of God's blessing and joy for our lives. It's what Jesus is saying all throughout the Scriptures. So the question is, is generosity a part of your life? I'm not just talking about to the church. I'm not just talking about to the poor. I'm talking about in general. Is generosity a part of your life? If we have to answer that question. If it's not, the Scriptures call us to that if, if you're scared to death to live generously, you're in good company because every single one of us in this room is. Amen? It's scary to give away your stuff, right? And the problem is we need a paradigm shift. We need to realize that it was never our stuff to begin with. God has made us to be stewards of the good gifts that He gives to us. So we're going to also look at the how. How? He addresses the how. So when you give, do it in secret, he says. They'll make a big show about giving. And, and I would say this, in general at New City Church, I, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone do this. But I don't want to let everybody off the hook saying that maybe that you never do that, right? 
Because we need to be encountered, we need to encounter the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. So he says, what he's basically saying is this: you give, oh, that's great. Giving's not enough. Giving's not enough because if your motives are impure and you're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's not enough. It's, it's about your heart. He's saying that if you give and, and you're giving reluctantly, you're giving with closed fists like, the, like God is prying those dollars out of your hand, he's saying it's not doing anything for your spiritual development. It's not doing anything for that part of your life. So I just want to talk about kind of, kind of two things here um, in regards to how we give and our motives. First thing is this, we've got to see that receiving grace and our generosity are directly connected. So, if you're a Christian in here, you've received grace. You've received grace because we serve a generous God who loves to give good gifts and every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights who's above. And He doesn't change. So they all come from Him. He's made us to live generously because He is generous. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will, will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will, will reap bountifully. So this is a principle for stewardship across the board. Not just for your money. If you sow your life generously, if you labor for the kingdom generously, you're going to reap generously dividends for the kingdom of God. It's just what he's saying. It's like the parable of the, of the talents, right? The guy that got, only got one talent, he went out and buried it. And then he's, he was rebuked. But the guy who got five or ten, they went out and they, and they, they tried to get more. He's saying, what God has given you, go, go and reap dividends for the kingdom, whether that be with your money, or whether that be with your time, or whether that be with your disciple-making, whatever it is, give yourselves away. You're going to find yourself most satisfied in Jesus if you give yourself away. And he says, you know, each one must, must give as he's decided in his heart. So, so your generosity is connected to your heart. He says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You connect this back to John 3.16. Why did God give His Son? Because God so loved the world. That's why He gave His Son. God did not reluctantly give His Son because you were a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. He didn't say, oh, gosh, they just can't get it together. I'm just, Jesus, just go down there and take care of business. He didn't say that. God so loved each and every one of you that He sent Jesus. And one of the ways that that works in and through us is that we are generous with our lives. We are stewards of what God gives us. So as you give, know this, it's a joy. Because your, your giving is evidence that you have God's provision in your life forever. And it's an act of faith, right? Whether it be writing a check or taking a meeting with someone who really can't contribute anything to your life. It's an act of faith that God will come through and provide. He'll provide the time that you need when your week is jam-packed and God's calling you to meet with someone. He'll provide the extra dollars that you need when you write that check to, to the person that's in need or to your local church. Whatever it is, He will provide. And it's an act of faith, so it should scare you every time. That's how you know you're in a good place. Kids, I want to encourage you here. You guys still tracking with me? You're doing great? I want to encourage you here. One of the best things that you can ever do is to learn to be generous at a very young age. Because guess what? When the zeros add on to your allowance and paychecks and bank accounts, the heart of generosity does not change. It doesn't change. What, 
what is built into you at a young age is what will come out of you at an older age. Uh, we got to learn this kind of firsthand. And, and, and I, think, I think kids can teach us a lot about generosity. I think they can teach a lot, a lot about it. We were, at, we were at some friend's house, and, uh, and uh, this kid named Levi was one of the, our friend's kids. Uh, and 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 Caden uh, were were playing together, and he had this like super super cool toy. It was like uh, you guys remember the Planes movie? Uh, w- you know, it's like an animated movie. There was this airplane called Dusty. Dusty, that's it. Uh, and and this guy had this, this kid had this awesome airplane. It was like a remote control. It talked. It, you could drive it around. I mean, it was like it was sick. It was nice. So you know, Caden was playing with it, and I was thinking the whole time, like, oh my goodness, like. This is like a $50 toy. And that's, I don't know about you, that's an expensive toy to me. So uh, I'm thinking Caden's really going to get his heart broken. You know, he loves this toy. Well, as we're leaving, Levi looks at Caden. He says, Caden, I want you to take that toy with you, man. You really like that. I just want you to have it. And listen, it was a pretty new toy. It wasn't like it was like his old, you know, old toy. And when we walked home, when we got into the van, rather, and we were driving home, uh, Megan and I looked at each other and we we're like blown away. I mean, this 10-year-old kid just gave away $50 to our kid who he doesn't even know that well. And we were blown away. You know what that started to teach uh, some of our kids to do? They have a friend that comes over, they, start, they just start giving their, giving their toys away. And sometimes I'm like, dude, dude, what are you doing? No, don't give it! <laughs> and the Holy Spirit like stops me. He's like, what are you thinking? It's like, you know, I'm thinking like, man, he worked up. He, he, he just used like three months of allowance on that toy he just gave away in like 10 seconds. See, I think that's the secret of the forgetfulness that Jesus is talking about. When he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. That's the secret is that Caden couldn't remember how much money he spent on it, how long it took him to save up for it. He just gave it because that's what he felt like God was calling him to do. So what's that look like for us? To be self-forgetful. In our giving. I think, I, think, I think our children in a lot of ways, we can teach them things, but they can also teach us a lot of things. Um, the, the second thing that we need to know this is that in the Scriptures, there are two targets of generosity. Um, or, or let me say it this way. There are, a, there are a minimum of two targets of generosity. Two that are very explicit. Um, the first one is this, weekly giving to your local church. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 16 to you, and I want you to hear what Paul says about this. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints as directed as I directed the churches of Galatia. So this isn't a specific thing just for Corinth. This is something he did in Galatia, probably Colossae, probably Philippi. He probably did this in all of his churches. He tells them how to give. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so there will be no collecting when I come. Now, now what they would do uh, is that is they, they would collect a gift and they would give it to Jerusalem. But we know from other parts of the Scripture that part of those funds that they would collect uh, probably the majority of them, honestly, would go toward the local church and the work of the gospel in their local community. So there was a vision for the world and for the, the, the poor in the world, but then there was also a vision locally. Um, and, and the Scriptures are pretty clear on this. Um, if I, so for the longest time, I, Megan and I didn't, didn't tithe to the local church. I, I shared this in our Covenant Partners class that I was, on, I was a full-time ministry for four years before we tithed. It's really embarrassing. Um, and uh, one of the reasons was I, I, uh, I, I think I didn't really trust where our uh, leadership was putting the money, if I'm honest with you. And somebody came up to me and said something. We were talking about this. And he says, so let me get this straight. So you will trust the leadership of your church 
with the care of your soul, but not your money? And it was like, it got me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. So I don't know what it is for you. If you're part of New City and uh, you know, giving to your local church isn't a part of it, there's probably something there that, uh, that maybe the Holy Spirit um, wants to invite you into. But it's clear that it's supposed to be a part of our lives. And, and, and I, I don't know about you, I just want to get more joyous in it. Um, I don't want to be reluctant. I just want to be cheerful in it. Uh, the, second, the second that's really clear in the Scriptures is almsgiving um, or giving to those in need. Um, you know, there wasn't, um, there wasn't a welfare system in Israel. There was the local church. And, uh, and you know, we could ask the question, if the local church were to be the local church, would we even need a welfare system? It would be this beautiful thing. But, but at minimum, I, man, I, just, I would love to pastor a church that, that at minimum cared for the poor, its own poor well. And I think that we're on track to do that. And, and I say all of this to, to let you know this. This is the most generous church I've ever been a part of. Doesn't matter the scale, the size. You guys are a generous people and it is a, it is a joy to pastor you uh, in that. Um, and, and I also want to say this. There are other uh, wonderful causes and ministries that even our family and our church supports that are outside of giving to the poor and giving to the local church uh, that are wonderful things. But what you, you just want to make sure you don't fall into the trap of just kind of self-directing all of your giving to all the places that you just you know, think, think that you should give without bypassing the things that the Scriptures do call you uh, to do. So um, I'm, not, I'm not telling you don't give to the parachurch organizations. Continue giving. Be generous to those guys. They're doing wonderful work. Some of them here in our own midst doing great work. Um, so what he's saying about this is when you do give, don't tell others about it. Don't even tell yourself about it. Because what happens when we begin to tell ourselves about it, it's like, how much was that, how much was that check we wrote? I mean, wonder what we, you know, we haven't been on a vacation in a while. What could we do with that? That's a lot of money. What could we do with that? When you begin to start contemplating it, it's like me trying to talk Caden out of giving a toy away. It's like, come on, think about this, man. He's saying when you start to talk about it and you start to remind yourself of it, the enemy creeps in and he kind of distorts everything. He says, don't even tell yourself about it when you give. Because really it's not a matter of what the hand is doing. It's a matter of what the heart is thinking during what the hand is doing. That's what Jesus is after. He's after our hearts. He's after our hearts. So uh, that's what I've got on, on this. And I just want to wrap everything up with sharing a couple of things with you uh, this morning. Uh, the secret to self-forgetfulness is this. We can't let our obedience go to our heads and we can't let our failures go to our hearts. Those are the two ditches we jump in. So if we let our obedience go to our head, we become self-righteous, right? But if we let our failures go to our heart, we, become, we struggle with unrighteousness where we think that there's no way God could love us. So the tension that we bear is this, is that, yes, I'm righteous, but it's because Christ lives in me. And because of that, I'll walk humbly. That's the tension there. I'll leave you with this quote. This is uh, from a Moravian guy, which the Moravians had like this church planning, renewal, revival kind of thing going on uh, in Europe before the Reformation ever happened. And this guy named Nicholas Zinzendorf uh, said this, because your names are in the book of life and you're remembered in heaven. He's, he, said, he then goes on to say this, preach the Gospel, die, and be forgotten. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together this morning in Your Word. Just enjoying Your presence. 
enjoying fellowship around hard truths that we need to hear, that we want to experience, God. We just proclaim once again that we're so desperate for Your presence. I pray for those in here uh, this morning specifically that may be just in a perpetual cycle of hypocrisy right now. I mean, we're all hypocrites to some degree, but for those especially that are just bound up with sin and they just can't find freedom, God, I, I ask that You'd have mercy on their souls, that You'd show them the light and You'd give them faith to believe that they can walk in freedom. Lord, I pray as we think about how we're all tempted to be hypocrites, that we would see that we can walk in the light because You're in the light. And that changes everything. It's in Jesus' name, Amen.